Hello, how are you? Yeah, it is really good to see you again, and I will just join with the others who earlier said Happy New Year, and uh, want to say hello to all of our campuses this weekend are joining us, so uh, over at Central and East Abbey and way over on the North Shore, Mission, welcome to all of you as well. Uh, before we jump in, we're getting back into the Gospel of John where we started in the fall, but I want to just remind you of two or three things headed into the new year, and so I've got a stack of cards in my hand. You have heard us talk about these many, many times, but I want to just remind you of them. So I've got four cards here. Two of these are Bible reading cards. So if you have not heard this, I wonder where have you been? Uh, but anyway, if you've not heard it, we're inviting all of you, and of course, we can't force you to do this, and we don't want to coerce you into it. We want to invite you into it, uh, that this year, 2023, we are hoping as many of our church family will tick up the challenge to say, I want to read through the Bible this year. From cover to cover, uh, 1,189 chapters, so three, four chapters a day, you can cover the entire Bible. So these two cards, they're available at all of our campuses, out on the info desk, at kiosk, at the doors, pick them up. One is the whole year printed up on one card. You can stick it in your journal. And then each month, these smaller cards, we're going to give out as a reminder of that month. Okay, so you're with me on that. Then there's two other cards out there as well on these cards. And I want to remind you these. These both have to do with prayer. So last year, we challenged you in 2022, would you pick up one of these prayer, five by five by five prayer cards, five people that you know and love that are far from God, that you would say in this year, 2023, Lord, I'm asking you to do a work in their life. Would you draw them to faith in Christ? Would you put people in their life? Would you just impact them with something in their life? So pick up one of those five by five prayer cards, write down the names of people you love, and in 2023, saying, Lord, what would you do in this year? And then the other one is a new one, but I'm encouraged by this. Uh, we support and pray for 21 individual missionaries and missionary families and couples who are from Northview Church, members of our church who are serving in various parts of the world, the majority of them involved in church planning ministries and Bible translation ministries. And so we've got all their names on one of these cards. I'd encourage you to pick these up. Again, tuck it in your Bible, tuck it in your journal, and uh, remember to pray for those. And then finally, okay, so that's uh, all the cards. And then I want to tell you a little bit about what's happening out in Newfoundland, give you a little bit of an update. Uh, you will remember back in um, late November, we came to you with a project for our partners at Mile One Mission out in St. John, Newfoundland, and their vision to plant churches all over the rock and to repopulate that great chunk of real estate with new churches. So we brought you a project. We've not given you an update on it. And I am so happy to tell you that by the end of December, we mailed a check. I was talking to Stephen this week. They have received this check for $371,000. So thank you very much uh, for your generosity. And I'll just give you a little bit of heads up. Uh, Stephen Bray, pastor of Calvary Baptist, uh, head of Mile One Mission, is actually going to be with us the first weekend in February. Uh, you'll get to hear a little bit from him in our weekend services. And then Sunday night, February 5th, we're going to have a Newfoundland interest meeting. Uh, we got a young adults missionary trip going out there in April. We're doing a prayer and awareness trip for adults in the summer. If you've got any interest in knowing about what God's doing in Newfoundland, hearing these stories, praying for them, or just simply hearing about Atlantic Canada... Put that on your radar. Okay, all of that was free, has nothing to do with the sermon, and now we'll get going, right? Okay, grab your Bibles. Uh, we are in John chapter 5. Uh, you will remember, most of you will know, if you're not new, you will know that back in September we started a new study in the book of John, and we're actually going to spread it out over two years. Uh, we're going to take the first 11 chapters this year, the first half, and then we'll take the second half next year, and then we'll have some other series, obviously, uh, 
tucked in the middle along the road. But just a couple reminders. If you weren't here at the beginning, uh, or if you're new, I'll just give you a quick couple reminders on this book in general. Written by the youngest of Jesus' 12 disciples, a guy named John. So the, the name of the book is the name of the author, the youngest of the 12 disciples. He wrote several other books of the scriptures, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, near the end of your New Testament, and most significantly, the revelation of Jesus, the last book of the Bible written by the same author. So that's John the author. And he tells us why he writes this book and the reason we're studying this book. He gives us the thesis statement at the very end in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written. This is why I'm writing the book. They're written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That is why I am writing this letter. It is John's fundamental argument that he is making through the entire book. And in basically, if we put it in our language, he would be saying to us, I am utterly convinced. I'm utterly convinced that this man, Jesus, is and was who he says he was, literally God incarnate with flesh on. And I am trying to convince you through what I saw, my first eyewitness testimonies to tell you with the hope that you too will place your faith in Jesus. And it's why we're studying the book. It's our hope and prayer for each one of you. And it has been and remains the key that every person on the planet must answer this question. What have you done with Jesus? That is the fundamental question that everybody on the planet has got to deal with. What, regardless of your uh, ethnic and racial background and religious background and all that, this key question, what do you do with Jesus Christ? And this message, of course, is central to the heart of why we even exist as a church. It's everything that we talk about, lifting up Jesus, preaching Jesus, proclaiming Jesus. Why? Because we know that our greatest need is to be reconciled with our creator, and the only path to that reconciliation is through Jesus. So this is the central purpose of this book, and it's the central focus of our church. So before Christmas, we covered chapters 1 to 4. And chapters 2 to 4, chapter 1 is sort of the introduction, and chapters 2 to 4 is what some uh, commentators call the quiet phase or the private phase of Jesus' ministry. He's just really organizing, getting together. He's been baptized. He's calling his disciples, and he's spending a lot of time in his home territory up in the northern end of Israel in the land of Galilee, and it is bookended by miracles that happen in Cana, uh, the miracle of the wine, uh, water being turned to wine at the wedding of Cana, and then the healing of the Roman centurion's sick child, both bookending that in Cana. And then chapter 5 begins what many commentators call the public phase of Jesus' ministry, where he really begins to roll it out. And in chapter 5, significantly, is where the opposition to Jesus really ramps up. There's a trigger event that happens in chapter 5 that really ramps up the opposition that will ultimately end in his crucifixion. But through the next seven chapters, from chapters 5 up through chapter 11, and by the end of chapter 11, they are convinced they must arrest and kill this man. But the trigger happens here in chapter 5. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And you're like, well, what is that event? Well, let me just cut to the chase. Let me just, you know, remove all the speculation in your mind. You probably know this, but anyway, let me just tell you. Chapter 5, verse 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This is why. This is the trigger event. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which we're going to talk about today, but he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. 
That statement right there is the trigger event for the opposition to Jesus. Jesus now makes his first public declaration where he claims to be God. Now we know back in chapter four, there's always been, there's already been the revelation that he gave to the woman at the well that he was the great I am, that he was the I am of the Old Testament walking and speaking, the Christ is right here in front of you, woman. But that was a private declaration. In this chapter, he goes public. And so in some ways, as we get into chapter five, he's in Jerusalem. You might say Jesus goes to Jerusalem to pick a fight because it's really what he does. He goes there to poke the bear, if you will. And he's successful because he's not in town maybe a few days, maybe even just a few hours before the religious leaders decide this guy must die. Now, the second half of the chapter is entirely Jesus' own defense. When they begin to tackle him on this subject, he gives a very rich and deep Christological, the study of Christ, a rich and deep Christological defense. And so if, if you, like I'm carrying tonight, a red letter Bible, some of you have red letter Bibles with you, if you look at it, the words of Jesus in red, you will notice that from verse 19 onward, the rest of the entire chapter is all Jesus' words. It's Jesus making a defense. And so really the main point of this chapter is his defense of who he is as Christ. The first half is almost a secondary. It sets it up. And yet we want to take some time on this first half because there's some very important stuff here. In fact, I think there's some stuff in the first half of this chapter that if we got it, if we lived it out, I think it would radically change the way we live our Christian lives. And I honestly believe it would radically change the effect that we have on this valley. It would change the effect we have in Abbotsford and Mission and Aldergrove and Chilliwack and the whole Fraser Valley, in fact, the entire province. If we would get this and we would live out the implications in the first half of this chapter, it would really change the way we live our lives. I hope you're intrigued by that. Uh, it's a big promise. But anyway, here we go. So the first half sets up the scene for the second half. Now, I don't remember where I first heard or read this statement, but it's one of those that just gets stuck in my mind. And I think that this really is the big idea in this text. And it is this statement that the gospel comforts the disturbed and the gospel disturbs the comfortable. So I don't know when I first heard that, but it stuck in my brain. And it really is the big idea that we see played out in this text, that the gospel comforts the disturbed. It does. And it also disturbs the comfortable. And we're going to see both in this. So the first 16 verses is very simple story. Jesus heals a lame man on the Sabbath. And the story is both beautiful and tragic. And if we were to try to summarize it, which we're going to do, it would be down to two thoughts, two vantage points that we're going to look at this story. The first is this, the powerful one meeting the powerless and secondly, the merciful one meets the merciless. That's the two halves to this story. So the first nine verses, you can just follow along. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now in Jerusalem, there is by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, get up, take up your bed and walk. 
And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. Okay, we're gonna just pause there. We'll get to the second half in a moment. So just run through some of the details. There's, there's a lot of interesting details here and frankly, they're not salient to the main point of the text, to the main point of the chapter, but it's curious. So there's a feast in Jerusalem. So John mentions several feasts. As you're reading through the Gospels, there's multiple times where Jesus is attending feasts. And in every other instance, he names the particular feast. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, etc. In this one, he doesn't tell us which feast it is. And so commentators are looking at it going, which feast was this? And the reason this is important, because some think it's another Passover. You go, why does that matter? Well, maybe to the point of the text, it doesn't matter that much, but it helps us understand and date the length of Jesus' ministry. Because back in chapter two, we see Jesus going to Passover the first time. In chapter six, he's at another Passover. And in chapter 11, three years later now, the third Passover. If this is indeed another Passover, then it lengthens Jesus' ministry from just a little under three years to a little over three years. So it's trivia that's interesting to scholars Does it matter to the text? Not necessarily, but it's interesting. Secondly, we see this very interesting pool. This pool in Jerusalem that's called Bethesda. Now, anytime you see the word Beth attached to a Hebrew word that is translated into Greek and then translated into English, Beth means house of or place of. So Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. You have Bethesda. You're like, what does that mean? It is the place of the house of mercy or the house of kindness. What a beautiful name, right? You're like, I like that name, a house of mercy, a house of kindness, a place of goodness. And you're like, what was it about this pool that they called it the place of mercy? Well, it's because healing took place here. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but there's a ton of speculation about what was actually happening at this pool. Was this pool, just like we have today, a mineral hot springs? Uh, Was it like, let's drive down to Harrison and soak ourselves for a bit, right? You soak in these mineral waters. And there are famous hot springs around the world. We have many of them here in North America where people go. uh, One of the most famous, how many of you know where Bullockville, Georgia is? You might know it by Warm Springs because that's the name it got changed to. So a mineral-rich pool where back in the 20s and 30s, polio victims would go to swim in these waters and exercise in these waters, and they found amazing healing in these waters, and it became so famous that one of the presidents of the U.S., Franklin Delano Roosevelt, began to visit these pools. And ultimately, he bought the pools and turned them into a massive resort, and there was healing that came from these mineral waters. So some would say, well, this was a mineral-rich healing waters. And others would say, no, 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 it was probably just a pool of water piped in from Solomon's Reservoirs. So Solomon built all these reservoirs out of town, three, four miles. They piped the water in to several pools in the city. And others say, yeah, but there was an underground spring. Now, what's interesting is a lot of mystery and intrigue and even superstition arose around this particular pool. Because if you see there in verse 7, it says, The sick man answered and said, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. What does that refer to? Okay, is anyone carrying a King James Bible? Okay, there you go. God bless you, brother. If you read the old King James, there's a verse four that we don't have in our modern translations. And there's a reason for that is because the newest manuscripts don't include it. But verse four in the oldest translations say, an angel would come and stir the waters. 
That explains verse seven. You're like, well, where did that verse come from if it wasn't in the original? Well, it was probably some scribe explaining it. Probably saying, you know what, verse seven doesn't make sense. If you aren't familiar with this, if you hadn't been to Jerusalem, if you didn't know the superstitions, I'm just gonna put this note in the margin and later it got included and then in later manuscripts we realize it wasn't there. So verse four doesn't appear in our modern manuscripts. That's just trivia, it's not my notes, it's extra, don't count that to the sermon, please. But the legend has grown up around this pool. And John doesn't try to explain it or argue it about the healing qualities. He just basically says, Jesus sees this man and he heals him. So then we see this powerless man. This is very important. Around this pool are lying the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And again, the old King James, for those of you who are reading it, it actually says impotent people. People who are not potent, not powerful. So therefore, we get the word Powerless. Now, you know what? In our modern lingo, impotent has come to mean something quite different. And we don't use that word very much. In fact, we're kind of uncomfortable with talking about impotency. In fact, no man wants to hear his doctor say, you're impotent. We have little blue pills for that problem. But that word is actually a very important gospel word. And we're going to come back to that word in a moment. So Jesus goes in and he focuses on one of the multitude, a man who has been lame for 38 years. And we hear a question and we hear a command. Do you want to be healed? It almost sounds like a sarcastic question. Of course I want to be healed. Why would I be laying here? And I can't get in the waters when it's stirred because no one is encouraging me to go first. Everyone's plunging into the waters. And Jesus is like, well, I'll do you one better. Get up, take up, and walk. Get up, take up your mat, and walk, and the man does. So, the summary, the first nine verses, half of the text. The powerful one meets the powerless one. And right there, we get the core of the gospel. That merciful Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Is that not the core of the gospel? So let me illustrate it with a very famous gospel text. Romans 1 and verse 1 to 8, or Romans 5, rather. Uh, verse 1 to 8, and I've just pulled out selections from it. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, here's the key phrase. For while we were still weak, there's the very same word in the original language. It's the same Greek root that that word powerless comes from. When we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Every time we celebrate communion, which we're doing this weekend at all of our campuses, we are celebrating this, that the godly one died for the ungodly. And that God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the ESV, which I just read from, is probably not strong enough. It says, while we were still weak. The New Living Translation says, while we were utterly helpless. The NIV says, while we were still powerless, while we were impotent. We had no power of our own. We had no strength of our own when we could not do it for ourselves. And this is the message that we preach and celebrate every week, week in and week out, that God has done for us what was impossible for us to do for ourselves, right? Amen. Amen. And if we only had up to verse 9, then this would be enough. That the gospel comforts the disturbed. 
that the powerful one meets the powerless in their need. And, and when we're dead in our sin, when we're not seeing, when we're not hearing, when we're not understanding, when we are not seeking God, he comes seeking us. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the good news. Okay, but then the text takes a turn. At verse 9b, the second half of the verse, the merciful one meets the merciless. The merciful one now meets the merciless people. Verse 9b, now that day was the Sabbath. Now that little phrase might not mean much to our culture today, but that word was loaded with meaning for a God-fearing Jew. And if it's been a while since you've read Exodus 20, let me remind you of this particular command. It is the longest of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment, the longest. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea and all that was in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So put very simply, that command, which was very familiar to John's audience, was that God said, I want you to set aside one day out of seven as a very special day given to you as a gift. It's a day for you to rest it's a day for you to find renewal and refreshment and celebration and to gather with your family and with the family of God and to eat and to worship and to celebrate and to know that you don't have to do any work on this day, that God in his sovereignty will multiply the work that you've done in your six days, that you will have enough to make it through the seventh and you don't have to work 24-7. You can actually take a day off and God will be your supply. It is a gift and it is a blessing. And you're like, well, so far, so good. Awesome. Well, chapter five, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, the first flag that we should be waving right there is this question. The question is, really? Really? Can you show me the chapter and verse where it says, I shall not carry my bed? Hmm. Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So he's passing the buck, right? Uh, we talked uh, in our second week of this study how they feared the Jews. They feared the religious leaders. And this man is like, hey, it's not my fault. The guy who healed me told me to carry my bed. So surely if he has the power to heal, heal me, then I should be obeying his command. So, you know, you need to follow him. And then of course, verse 12 and 13, they ask him, well, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn. He had slipped into the crowd. There was a crowd in the place. Who is he? Don't know. I didn't get his name. There was such a crowd of people and I was so excited about what's happening. Before I knew it, the guy's gone. And then chapter 5, verse 14, you get this cryptic little conversation. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, that verse would be worthy of a sermon unto itself. A cryptic little conversation. And, and some say, what does this text mean? You've been made well physically. Go and sin no more. So John just lets it hang. 
He just puts it out there and he doesn't give any explanation. He doesn't unpack it. So the questions are many. Was Jesus saying the reason you were sick in the first place for these 38 years was because of sin in your life? And we know that from Corinthians. Corinthians tells us that there are times physical illness is the result of sin in our life. Paul said that some of you are sick because of the sin in your life. However, in John 9, there's another healing story where Jesus heals a blind man. And the disciples are like, was it his sin or his parents' sin that he was born blind? And he's like, neither one. There was no sin here. This blindness was so that the glory of God might be displayed. So there's some mystery here. And some commentators say, well, you know what? What you're seeing here is this corollary between physical healing and spiritual healing. That Jesus, in essence, is saying to him, hey, you have been healed now physically. You are well. Go and sin no more. Repent of your sin so that you can be healed spiritually. Something worse, eternal damnation doesn't happen to you. But the main reason for this conversation, like regardless of what all that means, the main reason for this conversation is simply this. Jesus wants to be found out. He didn't have to go back and talk to this guy but he wants to be found out. Remember I said he goes there to pick a fight. He goes there to poke the bear. And so he knows what is gonna happen in the very next verse. He knows, verse 15, that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Okay, that's our text. Just stop there for a moment. Because on the surface, this is both a fascinating and a disturbing conversation at so many levels. But you have this guy who's been an invalid for 38 years, who has now been miraculously healed and set free. He is literally on his feet. He is able now to get to the temple, which he wouldn't have gone to the temple for years. And rather than celebrating this man's freedom, the Jewish leaders are in attack mode because their rules have been broken. Is that not interesting? And so we're going to go down this trail for a while because we need to camp here for a few moments. It's very important. Because throughout Jesus' ministry, as you read the Gospels, you will see him confronting legalism of the Jews again and again and again. That rather than using the law as a guide for life and living, they have used it as a stick to keep people in line. So I just want to remind you of the history. Many of you know this history entirely, but maybe others of you don't. That the slaves in Egypt for 400 years, the children of Israel, who were set free under Moses, had no clue how to govern themselves. They had been slaves for 400 years. They just simply saluted and did what was, they were told. They were slaves. They're coming out of Egypt, and God gives to Moses literally the Articles of Confederation for this new nation. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights and Freedoms, we might call it. He's like, this is what life under the rule of God in a theocracy in the promised land, this is what it will look like. These are the laws of the land that are given for your good. And there were three types of laws given. There were civil laws, there were ceremonial laws, and then there was the moral law. What God is saying to Moses is, I'm going to give you a way of life that will set you apart from the nations around you. But here is fundamentally the key point. These things are given for your good and for my glory. So Deuteronomy 12 says this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. 
That last phrase is critically important that God's plan for his people, the law that was given to organize their culture was for their good and for their flourishing and God did not miss a single detail in the law. He covered their money. He covered sex. He covered diet. He covered children and crops and herds right down to the minutia of life. If you have mold on the windowsill, what should you do about it? If you have a blemish on your skin, what should you do about it? Right down to the minute details of life. But woven all through the Old Testament is this underlying theme that not so much the letter of the law, but God wants our heart, the heart behind it. Because he knew human nature, that human nature could follow all the rules and still have a cold heart. So you saw it there, to love him with all your heart, to serve him with all your soul, to keep these commandments for your good. See, what inevitably happens, however, is that legalism simply slips in, it takes over. And this is a funny thing about the human creature. As much as we hate rules, we love rules. We are drawn to the law. There is something about the human creature that wants to know right and wrong, good and bad, and whether we intend on obeying the rules is an entirely different question. But we want to know what the rules are. How do you play this game? How do you get forward in life? You just lay it out there. Tell me what the right and the wrong is, and you know, then I'll make my decisions whether I follow it. And the religious leaders who were studying the scriptures to interpret and teach the scriptures added layer upon layer upon layer. You want to be right with God? Well, we will give you the list. And they did. We are told that the scribes and Pharisees codified 613 individual commands. Can you imagine? Can you even remember 613 individual commands? You must follow all these. And scholars tell us that they focused on three primary areas. They focused on ceremonial laws, specifically all the rituals of cleansing and purification and circumcision, they focused on dietary laws, what you could and could not eat, and they focused on Sabbath laws. Of those 613, the vast majority focused on these three areas. And what's the common denominator of these three areas? It's the stuff you can see on the surface, right? You see, it's very hard to see into the heart to know if a person is greedy or envious, or prideful, or struggling with lust, or any of those inner sins. But you can sure look over somebody's shoulder and see what they're eating. And you can make sure that they've washed up before they go to worship, right? All the stuff you can see on that side. So you might remember back the week number two, when we first met these characters in chapter one, the Jews, this phrase that's used almost entirely as a negative phrase. And I gave you a face. If you want the face of the Pharisees, it was uh, whatever, whatever her name is on, uh, oh my goodness, Monster Incorporated. Always watch. What's her name? Roz. Roz, yeah. Always watching, Wazowski. That's the face of the Pharisee. Always looking over somebody's shoulder. And once they started to focus on these three categories, then the fun began. Because just saying to people, rest from your regular work on the Sabbath, of course, is not enough. Because you know what? Those people can't be trusted. They're dumb. They need some rules. They need some specifics. So we need to tell them specifically what that work looks like. And so what was originally intended to be a gift 
A day off, gladness and rest and worship, be with the family, be with the family of God, celebrate before the Lord. What was to be a gift is made a burden as religious leaders add layer upon layer upon layer. So let me give you a couple examples. You could not heat your food on the Sabbath. Wow, why not? Well, because to light a fire means that you got to gather some wood, maybe even chop some wood, and that's work, and you can't do work, so therefore you can't have a fire, so therefore you must eat cold food on the Sabbath. You're like, I thought this was a celebration. Yeah, cold food. Fospa. You couldn't walk more than 3,000 steps. 200 cubits. You're like, where did they get that, that you had to stay home on the Sabbath? Well, it came from one little command that they forgot the context of. If you remember the story of the gathering of the manna, six days God provides manna, and on the seventh day he says there's going to be no manna. So on the sixth, I'm going to give you a double amount, take up double the amount on the sixth, so that on the seventh you don't have to leave your house to gather manna. There's a very specific context for that comment. You won't have to go out. It's not never go out of your house. It's like I'm giving you in advance so you don't have to leave home. And they made it a rule to say, don't leave home. Now, maybe many of you know this already, but some of you don't. And it's why I'm taking the time to unpack it. Because what we see in John is this principle at work, the Pharisees adding to the law. And specific to this context, to come back to the text, this lame man is healed, and he is told, you cannot carry your bed on the Sabbath. You are breaking the law. And the bold pushback to that statement should have been, was this, show me where the Old Testament says, I cannot carry a bed on the Sabbath. And the fact of the matter is, you will not find it because it is not there. You're taking an interpretation of your own and forcing your opinions on me. And so the Pharisees, now think about this. Think about this, friends. The Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious class, they should have been the most joyful people in Israel. Why? Because they were privileged to be the literate class. They could read and they could teach and they could explain the law. They had such an awesome joy to teach the things of God. And instead, the scribes and Pharisees used their position of influence to bludgeon people into fearful obedience. And what is worse yet, that they themselves are filled with inconsistencies. They selectively obeyed even their own rules. And Jesus comes up against their hypocrisy many, many times. John 11, Jesus saying, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And then he goes on a few verses later to say, But woe to you Pharisees, you tithe mint, rue, and every herb, the tiniest herbs from your garden. You tithe them religiously, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You ought to have done the first. You should continue to tithe, but don't neglect the others. Now, that long rabbit trail is for this purpose. That actually the first half of the chapter is not the main focus of chapter five. If we took chapter five as a whole, the main focus is next weekend when Jesus defends his claim to be God. But this event is the trigger event. And I don't know how many of you have run up against a legalistic spirit. Some of you, may have been raised in homes or in churches with a legalistic spirit. And it is a spirit that is alive and well in every generation, and it is deadly and dangerous on two fronts. 
Number one is this, it strips the joy from our Christian life. Because people start living their lives looking over their shoulders constantly. What will people think? Am I stepping out of line? Image management. I've got to put on a nice shiny plastic face when I'm among God's people. I can't let them see any weakness. I've got to live this perfect life. And more importantly, however, is that it empties the gospel of its power because it adds to the finished work of Christ. Now, I need to drill into here. Because if anyone ever implies to you, now listen carefully because you're going to hear some things that you're going to go, what did he say? If anyone ever implies to you, you cannot be a good Christian unless you fill in the blank, your flag should be going up immediately. Because the Christian faith, the biblical faith tells us up front and center, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is only one good Christian, and his name is Jesus. There is only one who is good, and he is God. And as our lives are hidden in Christ, then all the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. See, it gets really true, this statement. The gospel comforts the disturbed, and it also disturbs the comfortable. And there, I guarantee it, in our services this weekend, there is someone who still is under the illusion that you can be a good Christian. That if you work harder, if you pray more, if you sacrifice to a greater degree, that if you simply serve and pray and give and worship and sing louder and share your faith more, that somehow God will approve you. And now, like, here's be careful, because all of those things are good things. But do not miss the point. God has called us unto good works, but they have nothing to do with saving us. We don't do those good works to be approved by God. We do those good works because we have been approved by God. It's a massive difference. And so I have to tell you this. I must tell you this. As your pastor, I have to tell you this. You have to hear these words. God will never approve of you. And God will never approve of me. Never. No matter what level of sanctification we think that we are able to reach, it will not be us that he is approving, my friends. Because you and I can never, ever merit enough to gain God's approval. Are you with me? It cannot be done, humanly speaking. It is impossible. But here's the gospel. There was one. There was one who fully met the approval of God on every occasion. He lived a perfectly righteous life, and his name is Jesus. And if our lives are hidden in Christ, then the approval of Christ becomes ours as well. Amen? This is the freedom of the gospel. And oh, this freedom that we need, friends. It's why I said it would change our church. It would change our community. It would change our province. It would change our nation. The freedom that we would have. But somehow, mercilessness seeps in so quickly. Now, I just got to drop one more little bombshell here for next week because this is so great. Just to prime the pump for next week. Verse 17, to finish our text, Jesus drops this bombshell. So verse 17 But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. And what he says in essence in verse 17 is this. By the way, folks, just so you're clear, God doesn't take a Sabbath. 
My father is always working. The the verb is written in the the ongoing active tense of the word. He was working, he is working, he will continually always be working. He's working right now, my father's working, and so too am I working. My father never stops working, even on the Sabbath. Woohoo! You're like, where are you going with this? I'm going with this this way. God never takes a day off. And aren't you glad that he doesn't take a day off? You send the email to God and you don't get the autoresponder going, hey, I'm out of the office, get back to you in 24. (laughs) The Sabbath, Jesus said, was for man. It was given to humanity as a gift unto us. Are you not glad God never takes a day off? Psalm 121, let me read it for you. Psalm of Ascent, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you, now listen to this, he who keeps you will not slumber. It is why you can go to bed every evening and lay your head down on the pillow at full rest and trust, knowing as we sleep, God doesn't. He is watching over us. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade by your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He doesn't take a day off. And so what Jesus is really saying to the Pharisees here in verse 17 is this. Make no mistake, my friends, that God is not bound by your Sabbath rules and neither am I. Because God, my Father, is working, and I, too, am working. And it is like, boom. And verse 18, then, the cause of all this controversy, that is why the Jews are seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So that's the setup for next week. This week, we see the heart of God for two groups of people. For the powerless and the merciless. And the heart of the gospel is a word of comfort for those who are weak, who are helpless. That Jesus Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the gospel, the heart of the gospel, is also a rebuke to those who cannot show mercy. If you have turned our freedom in Christ into a burden, Jesus is saying, And you're not even satisfied to carry that burden yourself, but somehow you feel the right to impose your legalism on other people around you. And Jesus gets up in their grill when he says, in essence, even the God, even God the Father doesn't obey your man-made rules, and neither will I. I have come to set people like this lame man free. So I don't know what the Spirit of God is saying to you this week, but there are at least three ways that we could apply this text, and then we'll wrap it. Number one, we should dance in the freedom that the powerful one has given to the powerless. Amen? If we capture the gospel that we, like the lame man at the pool, could do nothing to save ourselves, but Jesus has done everything for us, if we got this, we should be like, woo, every day of our lives, right? We get out of bed in the morning and we go, thank you, God, your mercies are new today. Thank you, God, that you did for me what I could not do for myself. Thank you that past, present, future, you've got me covered. I am righteous in the righteousness of Jesus. Yes, amen, joy. Woo! Come on. 
Uh, I heard some woos over at mission, or did I not? Yeah. Secondly, to look in the mirror and ask the question, have we added to the gospel something that isn't there? For whatever reason, and it might be the homes that you were raised in, it might be the churches that you come from, that somehow we have added a burden and we carry a burden that we were never intended to carry. And I know that in our congregation, guaranteed there are some who need to be set free from those burdens. And I pray that this weekend you're set free. And finally, and this is the most difficult, the most difficult of all, is that we have to be on guard, like the book of Galatians, which is a sidebar, but that entire letter was written about this issue. Like the book of Galatians, that if there are those who make their way into our churches, who add layers to the simple core of the gospel, that we would stand in the strength and the freedom of Jesus to say, no, you will not add a burden to my life, and nor will we allow you to burden others with your man-made rules and regulations. That one's tough, but we must do it. And friends, I believe that if we were to truly embrace the freedom and the joy and the service and the ministry that we have in Christ, if we would take the joy of the law that was given for our good and our flourishing, if we would live our lives according to our word, that there would be no stopping of the advance of God's kingdom and God's joyful people. Can you imagine as salt and light out in the community, people going, what is wrong with those people? Why are they so stinking joyful all the time? Because we have been set free by the Spirit of God. Our homes, our city, our nation would be transformed. The gospel comforts the disturbed, and it disturbs the comfortable. When you stand with me, let's pray. So Father, as we get ready to come together around the communion table, we celebrate the truth of the gospel, that the powerful one stepped down to serve the powerless. And Lord, I pray that every man and woman hearing this message this weekend will have experienced this truth, that you will, by your spirit, have opened the eyes of their heart to see that there is no way for them to merit your favor, your approval, except through the finished work of Jesus. And that their eyes would be open to that, that they would receive it with joy, that they would experience the forgiveness of their sin, the freedom from guilt, the chains being drawn away from us. And Father, that in that, then that they would step into the joy of walking with you, that we see that you have done all this for your glory and for our great joy. Lord, may it be true of us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.